Um, I'll be bringing today's Bible reading, but before that, if you don't have a Bible or if you'd like a Bible, um, the host team are now handing out Bibles. So feel free to put your hand up if you'd like a Bible um, as I read the Word, and you can follow along. Today we'll be going through Acts chapter 18. Um, Acts chapter 18, starting from verse 1 to verse 28. Um, And before I get into the Bible reading, first let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is true and that has existed long before time, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died an unfair death for us sinners on the cross. Lord, we thank you that we have received this good news that saves us from death and brings us into life. Lord, we pray as we read your word and acts, Lord, um, that we may be guarded by distraction or unbelief, Lord. But Lord, also when we read your word, help us know about the early church and yeah, how you work through our hands and through our words that we may speak to others. But Lord, it's truly you that change people's hearts. Lord, we pray as Iggy um, comes up to read your word and to preach on this, Lord, you may guard his heart and you may help us understand more about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. So we'll be going through Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 28. So starting from verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshipper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of the God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matters yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on 
in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had cut his hair off. He had his hair cut off at Sencro because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he had spoken with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in the public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes when I'm at home with my kids, uh, I watch my kids. Um, I've got five kids. Uh, They're often playing together. It's busy at home and I like watching them and watching them just like, you know, play with their Lego. Um, the other day they built a super pillow fort, uh, which was really fun. You know, they like to go in the backyard, they dig around in the dirt and do all these random things and they just, they just love it, big smiles on their faces. And sometimes I look at the kids and I think to myself, oh, it'd be good to be a kid again, wouldn't it? Have you, have you ever, um, you know, maybe your parent and you've thought that a few times, or maybe you've just seen kids playing in the playground down at the park sort of, and you just look at how, um, yeah, how much fun they're having and the smiles on their faces and you think, oh, wouldn't it be good to be a kid again? And we think that, why, why do we say that? We say that because kids have no responsibility, right? They just don't have responsibility. They just do whatever they want, carefree, everything's for, like dinner just turns up somehow. You know, my, my kids have this concept of the magic, like, oh, food's here, food's gone, it's clean. How'd that happen? Well, it wasn't me, so it's, life's good, it's happy, yeah? We think about that because responsibility often can be hard work, can't it? Um, responsibility, um, as we desire to, you know, maybe just have this carefree life, a carefree, happy life like the kids around us, um, it can weigh us down a bit. Of course, responsibility is part of being an adult, but sometimes the weight of responsibility, all the different responsibilities that we have can leave us really exhausted, can't it? Uh, really stressed out, tired, um, Perhaps overwhelmed is the word. Work, family, friends, church, it can all feel like a bit too much as it all happens all at once. And we keep trying to work harder, trying to hold it all together, trying to make sure things work. It's like we're, um, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm juggling constantly, trying to keep things in the air to make sure something falls down, that everything works 
everything has to work, and it, it, you know, after all, it's all up to us, isn't it? We've got to make it work. It's all up to us. Or is it? Friends, I want to show you something today, some big biblical truths from Acts 18 that I think if we get them, we'll actually reframe the way we look at our life, reframe the way we look at our responsibilities. It, I think it actually changes the way we live completely. It will help us live a life of courage, a life of purpose, but also a life that comes out of a deep rest in our souls. So, let's begin. Keep Acts 18 open in front of you as we look into uh, the Scriptures. Um, And we're going to start uh, with just a bit of context, setting what's going on in this book of Acts. If you're just joining us today, so wonderful that you're joining us. It's great to see some new faces as we dig into God's Word together. We've been going through this series of Acts as we look at God's work in the early church. This is the growth of the early church. As the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, we call that, spreads all throughout uh, the land. So not just Jerusalem, where it started, but now it's going out to all countries. Now, what's happened uh, last week, we saw from Pastor Matt that Paul, the Apostle Paul, an early missionary church planner, has just come from Athens. He's just preached at Athens at the Areopagus, this open-air stadium. And we find Paul traveling today, so you'll see around where that point five is on the map up the top there, that's where Athens is. We see him now traveling down to Corinth. And Corinth might be a name that's familiar to you because that's where the book of Corinthians is written to the church in that city. Now, Corinth was a major port city, and it was known for a few things. It was known for its prosperity. It was very rich. It was known for loose morals. Uh, it had a temple of Aphrodite, the Greek love goddess within it. In other words, this city was about money, pleasure, and sex. It was the Las Vegas of its time, really. And it was also the capital of the region, the region there. And note, uh, you'll note that the Apostle Paul, as he travels around, his mission strategy is actually to hit major city centres, right? So he can have the greatest impact with the gospel. Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and soon Ephesus is the next one. There's some wise planning and strategy when it comes to the spread of the gospel. And as he goes to Corinth, that's where we pick it up today. He meets some friends, Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish believers from Rome. And when our first point, we're going to look at teamwork. Now, this married couple, this married couple become a vital part of the mission. Later on uh, in this chapter, um, so they they, they actually meet up with Paul, they start working with him, they travel around with him. And later on in this chapter, um, Paul actually leaves Corinth, sails to Ephesus, um, the map again, you'll see Ephesus across the sea there. Um, But he can't stay there. So what he does is he leaves Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila to do gospel work there for him. And look at the difference they make. I want you to actually jump forward with me in Acts 18 to verse 24. So everyone look at verse 24 with me. Acts 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we meet another character in the story, Apollos. This is a well-educated, passionate preacher who loves the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet back then. And he's teaching boldly about Jesus in the synagogue. 
But look, at the end of verse 25, what does it say? It says, he knew only the baptism of John. What's this mean? Well, Apollos' knowledge of Jesus um, is incomplete. It's not inaccurate. It says he taught Jesus accurately, but he was missing something. It's just incomplete. He's probably preaching a message of repentance, turning away from sin, and belief, turning to Jesus. A message that the long-awaited Messiah is here. This was the message of John the Baptist, after all, as he baptized people in the river many years prior. But what Apollos probably didn't know was that a new baptism was here too. Not just of water, but of the Holy Spirit. That because Jesus had died and risen again, that the Holy Spirit is now available to all who believe. Not just the Jews. That salvation from sin is for not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, for everyone, for Greeks, for the whole world. There's a, the Holy Spirit has been poured out for all. And Priscilla and Aquila, they, they hear Apollos preaching. They go to him and they say, Hey, Apollos, um, do you want to come over to our place for a meal? They invite him over. And they fill him in the full picture of the gospel. You see how they do this. They gently correct him with a gracious, you know, it's a gracious, loving thing to do. I reckon in our day and age, the response might have been a bit different. Uh, The response might have just been a a post on Facebook, just criticizing, hey, I heard this guy preaching and he got it all wrong. What a loser. That's the sort of response we get nowadays, don't we? But we see this gentle correction, this love from Priscilla and Aquila. And the following verses describe how actually Apollos goes on to be an absolute weapon for the church, the gospel. He's just debating opponents vigorously everywhere. He's persuading people that Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing amazing gospel work as he goes out because Priscilla and Aquila helped him. The second half of Acts, actually, as we go to this book, is, is, is centered a lot on the missionary journeys of Paul, the Apostle Paul. But what I love is he's not alone because ultimately it's not Paul's work It's a team effort, isn't it? It's not just Paul's work. It's a team effort. It's, yes, you know, think about it. Paul is a superstar apostle. You know, he wrote half our New Testament. But hey, he needs help too. It's not all up to him. How wonderful that Priscilla and Aquila stepped up when Paul was away to disciple others. How encouraging is it to see that Apollos um, was humbly... You know, willing to be corrected and then go on to be a key partner in the gospel work, key part of the team. I'm sure when Paul heard this, he would have been overjoyed. He would have been so happy that the work was continuing, not because of him, but without him. Friends, we need to remember something too. It's not all up to us. Life, what happens, it's actually a team effort. You aren't meant to do this thing called life alone. Can you remember Adam in the garden? The only thing that was not good there was the fact that he was alone. Not because he was lonely, but he needed help to do the work that God called him to do. That's why he needed Eve. To be human is to need others. Mothers, you aren't meant to bear the stress and exhaustion of parenting small children by yourself. Those of you struggling with mental health, You aren't supposed to try and just work that out by yourself and bear the whole weight of that on your shoulders. Men in the church, you aren't supposed to bear the responsibility of work, being a strong husband and father, if that's your situation, you know, doing all those things without showing any emotion. Just be strong. You're not supposed to do that by yourself. 
ask for help. That isn't weak. That's just being human. Because living as a disciple of Jesus in this world, no matter what you are doing, it's hard work. It's challenging. And we actually need others. We need a team around us. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, this is no different. We've seen this gospel partnership with Priscilla, uh, with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Who's on your team as you're seeking to share the gospel with others? As you're seeking to help your friends come to know Jesus Christ? So often we think evangelism, I think, is a solo effort. We've just got to get out there, will ourselves, you know, give us, pluck up the courage to actually ask someone to have a conversation. We've got to prepare the best answers. We've got to study the apologetics. It's all up to us. That's how we think about evangelism. But um, I think we've got to change the way we think. Um, there's an Australian evangelist called Sam Chan, and he talks about how important it is to do this thing, this evangelism thing as a team. And the word evangelism, that just means sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Because he, he talks about something called merging worlds, where you have a group of friends which are your Christian friends from church, and then you have a group of friends which uh, might not yet know Jesus yet, but maybe you want them to just investigate, to explore. And oftentimes we keep one group of friends over here and one group of friends over here. But what he actually calls us to do, he encourages us to actually bring those worlds together, merge worlds. And why is that important? Because think about it, if you, if you are the only Christian that your friend who doesn't yet know Jesus, if you're the only Christian that they know, and oftentimes the statistically that, show, that is the case, many Australians don't even know a Christian or call a friend a Christian. You might be the only one. If you're the only one that they know, and you're telling them all about this guy called Jesus who you know, um, was the son of God, and then he came to the cross, and he died for people's sins, and then he rose again, and now he's living in heaven, he's a king, um, they're going to look at you, and most of the time they're going to think, this guy's a bit odd, you know? What is this weird thing like? Think about that news. It sounds very implausible. It doesn't sound very believable in one sense, does it? But how different it is, is it if they start to meet other Christians? And they start to hear that, actually, there's a whole bunch of people. You, all your friends believe this as well? And then they see the way that your friends live. And hopefully, as Christians, they're showing love and kindness and compassion and grace. And it's not just you that's having an influence. It's a whole bunch of your friends. It's a team effort. Then all of a sudden, the gospel becomes a little bit more plausible, doesn't it? They start to see that, hey, maybe, maybe there is something to this thing. Maybe it's not just my one weird friend that believes this thing, but there's a lot of other people that actually believe this as well. And actually, I'm seeing that this makes a difference in people's lives. These people are people I want to be around. These people are people that I want to be like. Do you see how much of a difference it makes if we actually think about evangelism as a team effort? This is actually something really important, friends. We can achieve things as a team, that we can't do by ourselves. And I think that's exactly because God wants us to work together. To work together. So I want you to think about your next dinner, your next board games night, your next rock climbing thing, basketball, social, soccer, tennis, whatever it is. Think about that and think about who's a friend that you can invite along so you can start merging worlds between your friends. Who are some friends from church? Who are some friends from outside church that you can actually bring along? Because ultimately, think about this, it's not your work, it's a team effort. It's not up to you, it's a team effort. That's the one truth that I want you to take away from Acts today. But as we return to Acts 
there's an even bigger truth that I want you to take away. And it's this. It's not your work, it's God's work. It's God's work. And this becomes really clear as we just really just get into the passage and look at it. When we stop and reflect on how this gospel partnership between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos even happened in the first place, we actually see God at work. Okay, go back to verse 2. Go back to verse 2 with me, all right? Same chapter, chapter 18, verse 2. Paul goes down to Corinth, and what does it say in verse 2? There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And historians actually write about an edict in AD 49 um, by the Roman Emperor Claudius, this is who it's referring to here, where there were actually riots and unrest in the city because um, people were debating about the identity of Jesus Christ. Um, So all the Jews, believers or or, um, non-believers in Jesus were expelled. It wasn't a nice time for the Jews. But think about this, it was only because of the persecution by the Romans that Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth even in the first place. Even when things looked bad, actually, it was all part of God's good plan. Because this meant that them being expelled, being cast out there in the city now, they could meet Paul, they could partner with him in his work. They could go to Ephesus with him, they could meet and train Apollos. Is this a coincidence? No. God is in control. God's got a plan here. And this theme comes up over and over in this passage. After Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy, more gospel workers, come and join Paul. And he goes to preach in the synagogues, the Corinthian synagogues, which is sort of like the Jewish gatherings, uh, um, sort of like their church. But he gets so frustrated at their opposition and abuse, they start abusing him, he gives up on them and says, you know, stuff you guys, essentially, that's what it says, that's my translation. He says, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Right? So he's given up on the Jews. But then look what happens next. Have a look at verse 7. Jump forward to verse 7 with me. Look what happens next. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Did you notice who became a believer here? It was Crispus, the synagogue leader. This is the leader of the group that is trying to kill Paul. The leader of the Jews, they want to do any, anything they can to shut him up, keep him from speaking of Jesus as the Messiah. He should be the one most opposed to the gospel. He's the last one that you expect to be saved. It'll be like the, um, the lead pastor of the Mormon church down at Kangaroo Point just packing up and just, you know, joining us. I bet you Christmas is the last person Paul expected to be saved, especially as he's just said to the Jews, I've given up on you guys, you're hopeless. But guess what? This isn't Paul's work, it's God's work. He does things that we don't expect. He's the one that changes the heart of Christmas to see the truth. It wasn't Paul. He's he's the one that helped Christmas to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king that saves. And Christmas believes His whole household believes. Many Corinthians believe, even after Paul's given up. God is in control. This is his work. And then Paul goes on to get an explicit reminder of this through vision. 
from God. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 in your Bibles. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. When I think of the Apostle Paul sometimes, I think of him as this like superhuman sort of figure. You know, like he's the sort of guy that if, if there's like a little kid, you know, like in the movies that um, scene where there's like a little kid stuck in a house that's on fire. He's a guy that just runs in and he just saves that, doesn't care about himself. You know, he's got, he's so brave. He's just got this, you know, courage that's superhuman, no concern for his life. But I think we need to remember something about Paul. He was a human just like you and me. He stayed up at night worrying about the next day. After all, literally people were trying to murder him everywhere he went. He doubted his decisions. He was anxious about those he loved. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that. That was his biggest weight, anxiety for the church. Which, is, which means that he needed reassurance just as much as any of us. Which is why God sends him this message. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. I am with you. Here is an explicit reminder from God himself that ultimately it's not Paul's work. It's God's work. God's got a plan. God's in control. God, Paul, I've got you in my hands. I've got a plan here. It's not all up to Paul. And here in Corinth, um, God's got many people that he wants Paul to draw out through gospel preaching. And he will keep Paul safe until that comes about. So Paul stays there for one and a half years, preaching the gospel. What a reassurance for Paul. And of course, God follows through with the promise. And we see a dangerous, as we see a dangerous confrontation occur. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in many ways contrary to the law. Galileo was um, the local Roman official in charge. And there's, uh, actually, there's a lot of historical sources that talk about him. Uh, historians actually write that his whole family was really anti-Semitic. They really hated Jews. So he would have despised this like, office that he had there. But look what happens, verse 14. Um, so a whole bunch of people are accusing Paul. They're trying to get him jailed, killed. Uh, just as Paul was about to speak to defend himself, just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. Here we see Galileo, right? A guy who couldn't care less about Jews and what happened to them. You see that in verse 17. They beat up this guy in front of him. He's like, I don't care. Like, do whatever you want, right? But ironically, this attitude from this Roman officer actually saves a Jew, Paul. Did you notice in verse 14 that just as Paul was about to speak to launch his defense, he's probably thinking, I've got to convince this guy I'm innocent or I'm dead. But he doesn't even have to speak. Galileo jumps in and just shuts the whole case down. Paul doesn't even need to say anything. Galileo saves him. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't expect that. I wouldn't have expected that to happen. 
a Roman proconsul ending up being the saviour of Paul through his dislike of Jews and lack of concern for them. This is unexpected. But once again, it's a reminder that it's not Paul's work, it's God's work. God has a good plan, even when things look bad. I'm just imagining Paul in the situation. Can you imagine Paul after the situation, just walking away, like literally just free from that after he's been dragged there for, in chains probably, and he walks away. He's, he's probably just shaking his head going, what, what happened just there? How on earth did that happen? He would have been laughing, you know, with a big smile, just shaking his head, and then he would have remembered, ah, God promised he'll take care of me. God's in control. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. It's not Paul's work. It's God's work. And this is firmly in Paul's mind. Everywhere he goes, it gives him comfort, this truth. It gives him courage. It helps to change his ministry. Uh, we see this as, Corinth, as he leaves Corinth and heads to Ephesus. Uh, verse 19. Sorry, jump ahead again. Verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised. What, did he say? what does he say? He says, I will come back if it is God's will. There, then he said, sell. I will come back if it is God's will. For Paul, he knows that all of his plans have this condition attached. Right? If it is God's will. He knows that it's not ultimately up to him. He's not the one ultimately in control. He knows it's not all up to him. He knows it's God's plans, not his plans. And knowing his, this truth, did you see how it changes how Paul lives? It enables him to live a life of courage, courage, bravery, of real purpose. And ultimately, even in the worst times, it allows him to live a life of rest, deep soul rest, knowing that God is in control, not him. My question, friends, is do we live like that? Do we live like that? If we um, live a life, you know, we, if we look back on our life, actually, just look, look back on your life and just think about how things have worked out. We can actually see that God has had a plan for every single one of us. Right? He's been working to bring us to this point that we are now. Not everything would have been pleasant. Not everything would have been easy. But He has had a plan to shape us and mold us into the people we are today. He's been in control. Now, often we forget that. And instead of depending on God, we depend on ourselves, don't we? We just try and get through life like it's all up to us. But let me tell you something. If you try and get through life um, like it's all up to you, live your life like it's all up to me, yeah, it will crush you. It will absolutely crush you. Yeah? Um, parents, if you think that it's all up to you to make sure that your kids turn out perfectly, that they're successful, uh, that they're obedient, that they follow Jesus closely every single day, that um, they're, just, they're well-rounded individuals, they're popular, but it's all up to you. You've got to do that to make it happen. If you think like that, that will crush you. Right? If, if, you, if you're a worker in the workplace and you're thinking you've just got to keep performing, doing more and more, you've got to impress your boss, hopefully he'll notice you, you've just got to work harder and harder. If it doesn't happen, it's because you didn't work hard enough. If you live like that, it will absolutely crush you. Students, there's students here, aren't there? If you think that your results, your exams, your ranking, what, what, what you know, will determine um, that, that ranking that determines your future, if, it, that's, if you think that's all up to you, that will crush you. 
If you, th if you think it's all up to you to fix every relationship that you have, every conflict, if you think it's all up to you to just work through every health, mental health issue, anxiety and worry by yourself, I just got to get my act together, you tell yourselves. I, don't, I can't burden anyone. I just got to do this myself. If you think it's all up to you to fight sin, to just fight it, to just grit your teeth and clench your fist and just, I just got to try harder. I just got to try harder. Then I can do it. If you think that it's all up to you, then that will crush you. Let me tell you, this is not the life that we are called to live. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't be responsible, right? Don't. Uh, on the contrary, because I think God has called us to certain roles in our life. He's called us to be faithful and fruitful in what we have. Whether you're a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a husband, wife, worker, friend, disciple, whatever it is, um, you know, disciple of Jesus, you, you are called to do these things with faithfulness and integrity. Yeah? You're called to fulfill your responsibilities, not to be lazy, not to be slothful, to use your gifts as best as you can to serve God. That's what you're called to do. We have a God-given responsibility to fulfill to the best of our ability what he has called us to because God works through us. He's chosen to work through us to do his work in this world. But remember that point. It's his work. It's God's work, not our work. It's, it's not ultimately up to you. God is the one who is in control. So yes, Take responsibility. Live out your calling as a disciple of Jesus in all that you do, as best as you can. That's what God wants. But do so with the right mindset. It's not your work. It's God's work. We need to start thinking a bit more like Paul. Not my will be done, but yours. Go, God. Let me tell you, if um, just a personal reflection, people often talk to me about being a pastor, uh, lead pastor of a church, or well, they often, often talk to me about ministry and they, th they say to me, hey, if I'm thinking about doing full-time ministry, what's the one thing I need to know? Um, I always tell them the same thing. I say, I say, you need to actually trust that God is sovereign. Yeah. If you don't have that, you cannot do ministry. <laughs> no, no way. Because I, I know for myself, if, if I live like that in this role as a lead pastor, if I thought if it was up to me and my, um, my sermons to be like... Uh, amazing every week, you know, engaging, biblically faithful, you know, a little bit funny, but not too funny, um, you know, like uh, really powerful and moving and emotional, but it was up to me and what I did up here every week to change people's hearts. You know, if I thought like that, then, you know, that's really a huge burden to bear. If, if I thought it was up to me um, for every single non-Christian that comes into this church, that I had to speak to them, otherwise they wouldn't be saved, because I'm the pastor, I need to do that. Or every, every single person needs to feel like I, I care for them personally, and I know them really, really well and deeply. Or, you know, it's up to me when that person struggles, I've got to fix that problem, because they're in my church, I've got to do it. Let, let me tell you, if I, if I actually believe that, then I would just be a complete nervous mess. I'll be crushed, I, would be, I, would, I wouldn't last one day, honestly. I wouldn't. I need to trust that God's in control. I need to remind myself of that all the time. Because ultimately, guess what? This is his church. It's not mine. He is in control. And nowhere is this more true than when it comes to evangelism. Let me, t let me talk a bit about this. Changing, think about this. What is evangelism? It's 
helping people come to know Jesus. What's happening when we share the gospel with someone? What are we hoping for? We're hoping for people to move from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're hoping for people to repent from sins, to actually turn from idolatry, worshipping self, and start worshipping God. We're hoping for them to have a complete reorientation of their life so that they're actually acknowledging God instead of ignoring Him. We're hoping for these massive spiritual things to happen that change people's eternity. We can't do that. That can only be God. That can only be God. God uses us in our imperfect, you know, Ray was talking to us about inviting our friends to Mark Drum and all that. We, we'll stumble over those invites. We'll try and talk about Jesus and stuff things up. People will ask us questions. Oh, why is God, um, you know, how can he let evil happen in this world? What's going on here? And we won't have answers for that. Guess what? God still uses that to somehow bring people to faith. Our imperfect presentations of the gospel. Friends, isn't it actually wonderful to know that God's in control, not us? Isn't that a reassuring thought? That's such a comforting thought. This is a truth that brings so much comfort as you rest in the sovereignty of God and as you entrust the salvation of your friends and family to Him. There's some of you here who are um, really discouraged about trying to share uh, the gospel with your friends. I know I've talked to some of you. Um, Maybe you're you're almost on the verge of giving up. Nothing seems to work, right? You just keep going and going. And you're grieving, especially if they're ones that you really love. They could be your closest family members. Let me tell you, Don't lose hope. It's not ultimately up to you. It's up to God. Keep persevering in prayer. Because when we pray, we actually say, God, it's your work, not mine. One of our uh, church members, uh, May, May Wong, um, guess what? She's been praying for her mum for 16 years to be saved. 16 years. I don't know about you. Most of us would have given up by then. (laughs) You know? Maybe after a year... Two, five, ten, talk. you'd give up praying. I asked, my, I asked May why, why, why she never gave up praying. She said, something, she, she, she said a few things to me. I'll try and sum them up. She said she's seen God answer prayers in the past, that he's proven faithful and sovereign over many salvations in my life. She said this, I asked for the same prayer at every Bible study, prayer group session, Anyone who asked me for prayer, I just said the same thing. People were probably a bit tired of the same prayer request. But I didn't worry about that because I knew God, I know God listens and was not sick of listening to the same prayer. And she said, I just kept going knowing that God is in control and he's ultimately the one who saves. I had to just keep trusting and keep praying. That's what May told me. May's mum passed away earlier this year. But we'll see her in heaven because she came to faith after all those years. What an amazing salvation God's done. Friends, I share that story to tell you to, don't give, to not give up. I know I've given up on many of my friends. I've been rebuked about that. But I need to remember, I think we all need to remember that God is in control, that he's the one that saves If we believe this, it will help us to keep going, to persevere, to not give up. And it will also enable us to be bold, to be courageous. Sharing the gospel, it's it's a scary thing. Um, Rejection waits around the corner every time we invite someone to church or mark drama or try and 
tell them about who Jesus is. But I want us to be encouraged to go forth like the Apostle Paul did, knowing that God is on our side. I want to share this verse with you. Matthew 28. The Great Commission, we all know it, but sometimes we forget this bit at the end. Let me read it to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What a wonderful promise we have from Jesus Christ, our King. We often miss that bit, don't we? Jesus is with us. The King's watching over us. If that doesn't give you comfort, I don't know what will. In your efforts as you seek to share the gospel with your friends, Jesus is right by your side, cheering you on, giving you the power you need to be bold, to be courageous, that even if this doesn't work, that don't worry, he's got this. Um, let me share you, uh, with you about uh, my son Nathan. He's eight years old. Um, he heard about the Mark drama, right? Uh, this Mark drama thing. He was like, oh yeah, that sounds really interesting. And, he's, he, and he wanted to invite some of He was like, I should invite some of my friends. He's got these two friends. Let me tell you, they're, they're not the sort of people that um, you would automatically think would want to come watch something like this, right? They, these guys are wild, these kids, yeah? Um, but Nathan says, I think I'm going to try and invite them. I was like, I didn't know if you would. I was like, okay, Nate, you can, you can try it, I guess. He came back after school that day, and he said, yeah, I invited my friends. They said no. <laughs> I was like, hey, Nate, good on you. I'm so proud of you for inviting your friends. But he later found out that there were some invitations, these invitations going out. He says, I think I might just give them some invitations anyway, because maybe they didn't actually understand what it was about. So maybe, maybe they might say yes. They might change their mind. Yeah, I was like, ah, it's a proud dad moment. <laughs> for Nate, it wasn't anything, you know, big or like, I mean, obviously it took some courage to do. I was so proud of him though, because um, he didn't give up, right? He knows that ultimately, you know, God can do anything. Give it a go. You know, I've got to trust in him. Friends, God is in control. He's with us. He has a good plan for us. So be bold. Be courageous. Go out there. Share the gospel. Give that invite to church. Give that invite to Mark Drama. Even if you think no way this person will come, because who knows? They might say yes. Because ultimately, it's not your work. It's God's work. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this reassuring truth that as we seek to live as your disciples in this world, with all the challenges that come to us, and even as we seek to go forth in this sometimes scary task of sharing Jesus, that ultimately, it's not up to us. It's not our work, but it's your work. Thank you that you have our lives in your hands, that you have a good plan for us, even if we can't see that. And that good plan includes our friends and their fates, their salvations as well. So help us to keep turning to you in prayer. Forgive us for the times that we've depended on ourselves and not you, and humble us to see that you are king and we are not. And that is a great thing. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.